For over 100 years, naval military professionals have counted on Naval Institute press books such as the Chief Petty Officer's Guide to prepare them for their responsibilities as they advance in their careers and to serve as a ready reference and refresher guide when needed. The Chief Petty Officer's Guide and the Cutlass Podcast are useful tools for chiefs of any experience level, petty officers who aspire to advance to chief, or anyone looking to reflect on the state of their leadership and management skills while benefiting from the experiences and insights of a variety of accomplished leaders. Get your copy of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide today using the links in the episode description or online at your bookstore of choice. Signed copies can be ordered at www.cutlassleadership.com. And make sure to subscribe to the Cutlass Podcast today so you can work to become a more sturdy, versatile, and credible leader. Now let's jump into the next episode of the Cutlass Podcast. All right, good evening, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Cutlass Podcast. So today, I thought we'd change things up a bit, and I usually don't dive into military policy issues per se, not to mean that I don't have my opinion on them or I'm not talking about them in uh, circles of acquaintances I have, but I've been starting to change my thinking on that a bit. So I thought I'd use some recent discussions about beer policy in the military as a case study of sorts for a discussion on change management and specifically on what could cause a leader or manager to be resistant or hesitant to implementing desired change in their organization and kind of dive into that world a bit. So so today I'm welcoming back Dr. John Cordell. He's a human factors engineer, commander of Naval Surface Forces Atlantic. Like me, he was a former surface nuke. He was a surface warfare officer, did two tours as a commanding officer. And John and I did an episode titled Managing Team Fatigue and Endurance back in October of 2020. So if you haven't Check that one out. Go back and check that one out. I don't have the specific episode, but I'll link it in the episode description. John's a prolific writer. If you think I write a lot, this guy, like, he's always generating out content. And he's received many awards for his writing on mental health, leadership, and manning. And we also did some work together advocating for fleet manning shortfalls on uh, on a podcast when I worked at the U.S. Naval Institute. And he recently wrote a USNI blog piece in July on the impacts of the Navy's current beer policy. And that article was called Revisiting the Navy Beards Policy with an Eye Towards Inclusion. And that was back in July. So if you go back and search the USNI blog, you can find that piece. So, John, welcome back to the Cutlass Podcast. Hey, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity, Paul. How you been these days? You know, I can't complain. I'm a little wet today, but enjoying uh, my new career and uh, enjoying, you know, like you said, writing the occasional uh, discussion. All right. Absolutely. So this topic comes up, I would say, rather frequently. And as you know, in the military circles, uh, and again, before we start, this is our all our personal opinions when we get into these policy discussions. I know you're not representing the Navy or Surfland or anything like that. And I don't represent anyone at this point when it comes to military organizations. So this this concept of, you know, there's a demand signal from the fleet, per se, on Navy beer policy. I know it's been brought up. Actually, in the 1970s, we'll talk about that in a bit. There was an adjustment where we Admiral Zumwalt allowed beers to come back. But this has been something that you and I have talked about in our group. So what makes you so passionate about this topic and what got you writing about it? It's kind of a funny story. It started out with just kind of a, I was writing kind of a, a funny, I thought, amusing sea story about my own experience. Um, you know, I, I was commissioned in 1984 and uh, was in nuclear power school when the, the beard policy changed. So all my instructors had beards when I started and they shaved them all off 
I think October 1st of 84. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so I didn't think much about it. And then, you know, fast forward, did a couple of those sort of, you know, sort of MWR beer growing contests and did one, um, in command of USS Oscar Austin back in 2002, I believe. Um, because we were out for Operation Iraqi Freedom, we were going to be out for a long time. And, uh, and so we did, you know, for morale welfare fundraising, uh, sold chits so that the, uh, the female sailors could put their, uh, wear a ponytail and the males could grow beards. Um, didn't think much about it until somebody showed up on, on the news being interviewed during the war with a beard and that caused quite a kerfuffle. And, uh, and so I kind of, everybody shaved and we all said, we're not going to do that again. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years and I come back to command the same ship where this person was who got everybody in trouble by going on TV with a beard. Um, so I kind of told the crew, I'll, I'll be darned if I'm going to go that route again. Right. Well, it turns out. <laughs> we go on a seven month deployment. We're out in the middle of nowhere and the exos kind of saying, Hey, you know, folks are feeling kind of down. Can we do a beard contest? And, uh, and we did. Um, I thought I'd kind of gotten away with it. And then there was a C-SPAN crew on the oiler that we replenished with and they filmed us. And, and unfortunately I never got in any trouble, but, uh, but it was pretty clear that we hadn't been shaving for a while. So, um, I sent that story to a friend of mine who came back and he's African-American. And he goes, you know, there's a serious side to this, which is the, uh, what sailors that have this thing called pseudo facility barbie or PFB go through. And so that opened a different discussion and sort of changed the article. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. We did the, the morale beard contest as well. And it's funny how you can connect beards to morale and stuff, but, uh, I do get that other side, that PFB thing is something I had to help manage. Um, and it was pretty intensive to help manage at a command, as you know. So, all right. I wanted to frame this like under organizational change. Cause really, if you're going to just like many policies, you know, you're, you're talking about a policy that would impact hundreds of thousands of people worldwide across the Navy. So there's two b basic types of organizational change. There's the adaptive approach. That's where an organization kind of uses small steps and maybe not just an organization. This could be a small team leader too, right? So if I'm a work center supervisor or a commanding officer of a quote unquote smaller team, I can take one of these approaches too. So you can do this adaptive approach where you introduce change using small steps over time. You evolve processes, workflow, and culture. And in those cases, you don't have this need for a dramatic change, right? Maybe climber culture. There's nothing harmful. There's no safety or ethical kind of issues. And the other is more transformational change. It's larger. It's dramatic departure from the as-is or the status quo. And then there's a third thing, right? You can just continue to go on with the status quo as things are. We touched on a little bit. So what's the history of this issue and your experience and thoughts on the situation regarding the beer policy, why we changed it, why it went backwards, what are the safety concerns behind it, all those kind of things? If it's okay, I want to start with one other piece of the puzzle. Okay. Uh, well, actually, two other ones that, that sort of feed his background into this. Okay. So the first is, um, you know, what is PFB? And I think... Uh, Having had two command tours and like you, uh, you know, several leadership tours, you, you are engaged with it. But, uh, until my friends started really sitting down and explaining to me, um, what it entails, uh, I have to admit I was sort of clueless, uh, back in the, uh, so he described, uh, you know, the, you have to sign a chit that says, uh, you know, I realize I have this condition, um, uh, and that, uh, if I don't maintain standards, then I can basically be sent out of the Navy. Um, and uh, I have to go and see a medical officer to get diagnosed with it. And PFB is essentially if you have super curly hair, um, then uh, it curls back around and it goes into your face. And it, it creates kind of a little wound there. 
Um, and then if you shave it, then the hair gets sharper, right? And it grows back out. And, and so you end up with these bumps all over your face. Um, and then if you try to shave them, uh, you can cut the bumps, uh, causing scars or bleeding. And then what, what a lot of folks do is, is you have to comb it and sort of use a tweezers or needles to pull the hairs back out. Um, but then once you get to about a, a quarter inch to a half inch, it goes away because the, the hairs no longer curl back into the skin. Okay. Um, so uh, it often gets described as kind of a, a temporary condition, but it's only temporary in that it goes away if you grow a beard. It comes back if you shave. And it can be fairly painful. I mean, the Navy has policies to, uh, if you have the chit, you, you know, you're supposed to shave occasionally. Um, you have to use the, uh, some sort of a cream to get the hair off. Uh, it was kind of like Nair, I guess. Yeah. Um, or you can do laser surgery, all of which have their own levels of, of sort of pain and, and, uh, and discomfort. Um, and then there's kind of the mental stress of being challenged, you know, where's your chit? Yeah. Uh, how come you haven't shaved and those types of things. Um, and we all sort of, you know, you and I probably just took that under good order and discipline. Yeah. But then you come to find out, as my friend pointed out, that, well, that's okay, but who's affected by this? Well, really, it's it's one discrete group, African-Americans mainly, and about 65, depending on what article you read or what research, between 40, 65, or even up to 80% are affected by it at some point. So it's a pretty large demographic in the Navy, uh, and so it's not trivial, and it can be kind of a mental and a physical uh, stressor mm-hmm. uh, for those afflicted. And I guess I had sort of minimized that since it didn't affect me. I didn't understand it. And so that, I think that's an important background. And then the last piece was, as I was crafting this article, crafting is a strong word, but I was writing this thing, um, a study came out in May of this year where the Air Force had looked at their beard policy and decided that they actually had noticed a uh, an impact on retention and uh, promotion. Air Force lets people grow their beards and keep them out for five years uh, before they have to go back and, uh, and revisit it. But they actually had had a delayed promotion. It kind of maps back, according to the study, to sort of a bias against beards under the good order of discipline uh, okay. thing. So, so now you have the physical and mental impact, but also a career impact of these policies. And that, to me, was kind of what tipped the scale to, to engage. Okay. Uh, if, that, if that makes sense, Paul. Yeah. And then – I think we just showed an article in our in our group that we you know text between about U.S. Air Force recently made another change to their many of their quote unquote good order and discipline type policies. They've relaxed on several of those, and I think beards was one of them, right? You know, I forget if it was in there. I saw the, the you know hands in the pockets was one. Oh, uh, that's it. Um, but no, I think uh, there has been a change. The NAV admin came out and allowed uh, some grooming of the beard. So it used to be if you if you were into this. You had this chit, you couldn't really do anything with the beard, so you had your neck and everything. One of my friends described himself as a homeless person, um, and uh, and you couldn't, you weren't allowed to groom it. Now you are, so that's yep. a big step. I think that came out of the diversity and inclusion uh, piece. Okay. But uh, okay, yeah. And if you go back, so it's not like you know the Navy, you know John Paul Jones puts out his call for able-bodied landsmen, and they're like shave your beards, right? If if you go back. I mean, the president of the U.S. Naval Institute, Admiral Warden, you see him, boom, big full beard. So back in Civil War days, this wasn't an issue. So apparently at some point, and I can go back and see lots of throwback pictures of sailors with beards and things like that. So something shifts initially. And in many cases, I think as technology improves, right, the shift towards from what I've always heard, it's a safety issue regarding getting seals on breathing apparatus and things like that. Or has it just been like a cleanly shaven man as a more professional man? We've militaries have defined good order and discipline by a certain look. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, 
I think it, I think it's a little of both, and and of course uh, they apply in different areas. So the, let's talk about the safety one for a minute. Uh, and certainly, uh, that's the policy. If you look at these uh, apparatus, that's what the manufacturers recommend, and that's what OSHA uh, demands is a clean shaven face. And so, what's missing is maybe some science behind it, uh, given the new you know, some of the new discoveries that we've talked about uh, of the impact it has on our sailors of, you know, could you do a study to say, okay, let's really look at, uh, it's really more about the, the seal, but also the duration of the air in the apparatus and that, uh, you know, what effect would that have? And so, uh, you know, looking to, uh, to you know, the research that I've done, I've been unable to find any coherent uh, data on that, just kind of the, the warning that, that it's a problem. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, is it, is it a couple of minutes? Is it 50% degradation? That would influence the policy. But it goes back to your question about policy changes. Uh, you know, the first thing is to go back and do research and, uh, and figure out what's driving the policy. And, uh, and I think that would be an important step there. Okay. Uh, but to your second point about the good order discipline is, you know, that, that whole discussion of SCBAs and, and safety really applies to sea duty, of which, you know, that's only about half the Navy. So on shore duty, um, there certainly was no, there's no safety prerogative. Uh, I'm not going to don an SCBA in the building and, and put the fire out. I'm going to run out the door. So, um, so now you come back to the good order and discipline argument, which is obviously an emotional one. Um, but we, We've gone back and forth a few times over the over the decades and in, in, in where that lands. So, so you know, two pieces to the puzzle there, I think. Okay. So there's a process that governs change. You and I have been through that. There's different models of it depending on kind of what philosophy you subscribe to. But to me, I kind of put it under the management process, right? So first of all, you you prepare a plan and you kind of craft a vision of what could be based on either your own desire for change. Perhaps you see something to the left or right of you, quote unquote, that like there's some benchmarking out there that you're like, hey, they're doing it. Why can't we do it? It gets you to think differently. Or perhaps the organization is is demanding change for reasons that you didn't understand. And then you start to communicate your vision and your plan. And then you implement the change. You embed the change. And then as you go through, you review progress and then you analyze your results. So it aligns with that management functions of planning, organizing, directing, and controlling. And I think your work, the writing you do, not just in this area, but with manning, with fatigue management, with mental health, helps prepare the organization for change, I think, right? It helps start preparing a vision. It brings in other perspectives, which is huge. And that vision goes with the preparation to make change. So can you talk through how you're thinking about your vision and the 2B in this area and what personal values and beliefs and perspectives are guiding your standards, expectations, kind of vision of what this policy could be? I think you touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Okay. And again, you know, it's not my policy, so I don't, I'm not going to say what it should be. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of a thought process that, that I would use uh, because, like you said, change requires to look at why the policy exists in the first place and then re-examine the reasons and see if there's any new information. And so, uh, as you said, a big part of that is to have all the stakeholders get together and have that discussion. Um, you know, where does this end? Well, you t- we talk about diversity and inclusion. And, you know, diversity is one thing. That's the, you know, the diverse workforce, male, female, different demographics, uh, races, things like that, beliefs. And then there's inclusion, which is, how does the organization embrace those differences and, uh, and and acknowledge them and still meet the mission and the vision, right? Yeah. And so when you talk about things like you talk about mental health, uh, you know, fatigue management really gets into stress management. You know, anything that induces stress on the force can cause risk. 
And, you know, I, I haven't experienced a PFB or the policy, so I can't speak personally from it. But from those I have spoken to, um, it's kind of always there and it's always a source of stress. And so, you know, does that, uh, you know, the Air Force study didn't go so far as to say that this is discrimination, but it said that the policy has appears to have a discriminatory effect. And so if you have something like that, you know, perhaps that's a barrier to that inclusion piece. From a practical standpoint, there's a financial aspect to this of recruiting and retaining sailors and particularly minority sailors that represent this demographic. And so, uh, and then there's just what really struck me was at a personal level was when I talked to people that have this condition, hearing their stories of how they were affected both personally and professionally really sort of struck at the core of, uh, one of my friends said just a humane policy that might be worth a revisit. So, uh, now, what would that look like? Certainly, there's sort of a list of, of could-bes, right? So on shore duty, there really are no barriers. There's no safety or, or or other barriers other than the psychological one that, you know, some some folks may not like the way beards look. Most other countries have gotten past that. Uh, Brits, uh, Germans, you know, uh, in their navies, beards are, are allowed with some uh, mitigations, right? But on shore duty, that's the real barrier. Um, and then you have the sea duty piece, which uh, you have to go back and look at the science again. But again, looking at the science as a balance, you know, and, and, and sort of laying out that plan, uh, you know, back to your, your, your part about the vision, there's really no major change. Like life, I grew a beard when I retired and my life didn't change dramatically. I don't think the Navy's life would change dramatically. There would be a public affairs piece to it. You know, why are we doing this? There would be sort of the old farts club like you and me who would react negatively to anything that's changed. And, uh, and so there would be, you know, some of that, there certainly would be some blowback. Um, and, uh, you know, you kind of touched on it, but, you know, when you change things, there's often unintended consequences and you have to be prepared for that. Uh, but those could all be talked through. So those are some things that are, that are kind of on my mind as, uh, possibilities. If okay. That makes sense. Yes. So this kind of, I just wrote down something about uh, Curtin's Adaptive Innovative Index. So it's called the KAI. When I went to the Navy's Executive Senior Leader Seminar, I don't know if you had the opportunity, if that was going on when you were on active duty. Yeah, I did. That was a great course. I yeah. think it's still going on, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so they put us, you know, you fill out your standard questionnaire and it basically asks questions on your willingness to either embrace change or embrace traditional values. Did you remember doing this? Uh-huh. Yep. yep. And then they line you know, you get a number and they line you up around the room, right? It ends up being a standard distribution. So I fell out almost one standard deviation on the innovative side. So I'm very prone to embracing change, looking forward, quote unquote, breaking China, like, hey, let's flip this. And on the other end, you got the people that are like, you know, like you said, the old farts club. I don't think that's everyone in the old farts club that thinks that way, but honed to tradition. Now, with that said, they're also gone through experiences, right? And they've got context from the time that policy was made. But in the middle, you've got these kind of bridgers, right? They can bring them together. So I think one part when you talk about the vision to change is like, hey, what is your propensity towards thinking about change uh, and adapting it? So I would think you're more of a innovator. Um, you know, it's funny you brought that up, Paul, because I was just thinking back, uh, there was a class of 20 of us and, uh, and there was one person to the left of me, um, in the class yeah. on the innovator side. And so, uh, yeah, um, but I think what the, what that class also drove home was there is no right and wrong on that scale. And so, uh, you know, it's not our place to impugn the folks in the middle or on the, on the right, but, uh, uh, or on the other end of the line, but at the same point to understand you know, their point of view compared to mine. You make a great point that, you know, we're, we're kind of at that tipping point now where, 
nobody in the Navy today was in the Navy when the change to the policy occurred back yes. in 84. It kind of passed that tipping point. So no one has that perspective. It's kind of like, you know, we talked about circadian watch bills, um, which is another change area that I've been involved in. Um, we're to the point now where, like, nobody remembers not standing a watch that's circadian-based. And so you don't have that perspective, you know. But uh, but to that point, you're right. I think um, the way you make it is you make a fact-based uh, argument. You look at the pros and cons. And you present that argument uh, to decision makers, uh, and then you accept the decision. Yep. You know, but then when that when the information changes, then I think it's a good time to go back. And certainly, the last two years have been one that have really fostered. Uh, you know, even the CNO said, "Well, sit down with someone who's different than you and have a conversation." And I've done that twice now in this context with TFB, and to me, it's been an incredibly eye-opening experience. And so. That's what I would recommend to any listener or reader is, uh, you know, before you form an opinion, talk to somebody who's been affected by it and understand what the road that they've walked, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, this concept of context is very important to me. So when I was a command mass chief, a fleet mass chief, even a Navy nuke, before I would recommend kind of any change, like, or if people were talking about change, my first thing is like, okay, why does the policy exist? When was it made? And what was the reasons that we put it in place given the time the policy was made? So that frames the context because there might have been very valid reasons why that policy was there given the current climate, given the current organizational structure and things like that. But then you fast forward it and now you can frame it in what has changed. And that's what enables you to bring up that kind of concept. of Back then, this these were the conditions the conditions have changed. The policy hasn't changed. And this was one of the discussions with warfare discussion, you know, getting rid of the manned warfare requirement was, you know, look back at the context. Why was the decision made? Evaluating its impact on today. And even things like the sale of the year program, right? When that got adjusted, I remember being in early discussions back then. It was uh, Fleet Whitman and I, it was Fleet Beldo. I think Giordano was one of the Fleet Mashies. And we were just on a whiteboard and we were talking about sale of the year process. You know, I was like, well, why do we only have four? Why can't we have 15? But we framed back. It took us all the way back to when they established the sale of the year program. And what you learn about the purpose of the program back then compared to today, that really helped inform the green light for us to go ahead and start pursuing that change. All right. So as a change agent, you know, and I felt I was one and many leaders are within the Navy, given your position. And just because you're a commanding officer doesn't mean you're not a change agent for higher levels in the organization, right? So as you could be a change agent for surface forces and things like that. But we try to anticipate roadblocks to the change. And then I found myself always like thinking intellectually, like how will they challenge this, right? It's almost like lawyer. If I say this, what's the argument back? And is the argument informed? And some of these challenges can come back for a variety of reasons, right? So we don't have people, we don't have money. Leadership support's not there. And like we talked about, it appears the Navy was aware of that issue and, you know, others have written about it and we had authorized beards. But for some reason, I think we touched on Navy leaders have been hesitant to move forward with this change towards the beard policy. I've read that fear of consequences, quote unquote, is a big reason leaders avoid change. So what's your thinking of the consequences as you think through this that a leader could fear? What are the risks they're managing of changing the policy? And then are those fears valid? I'm not trying to judge uh, decision makers. I'm nope. just trying to give my own view here. But uh, 
Uh, let's start with the, the, the big one, which is the safety issue. Is, uh, you know, at the far end of the curve, there's a risk that we could change the policy and it could be a fire and, uh, someone with a beard could either be injured or delay response or impact the ability of the fire to f- team to fight the fire. Um, that's a real possibility. However, any risk assessment has probability and, uh, and severity. And, you know, you look back over time and, uh, even with some of the large, uh, fires that we've had, I haven't seen any evidence that that has been an issue, nor from my friends who served on, you know, submarines and ships when there were beards and had fires, nor from the Brits or the Germans or anybody else. So the chances are fairly low, it seems, but then the question is, are they low enough? And that's where the, the data would come in. So that would be one piece of the puzzle. On the other end is what are the consequences to a policy change in sort of the public perception of the military, self-perception, and uh, that's where I think education could come in. I didn't understand PFB when I was a leader, and I would submit that some of my you know, Caucasian friends maybe don't yeah. uh, understand it well, just like I didn't. And so maybe educating would be a piece. Um, and then uh, if the policy changed, you know, what would be the repercussions there? There might be some, some time, right? It would take some time to adjust to it, just like the ponytails. But we survived that, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then the last piece is, you know, you talked about status quo. Well, let's, before we do that, you know, the, the other piece we look at when we make a change is, you know, is the change reversible? And in this case, uh, the answer, I think, is yes, it's completely reversible. You can always go back and say, oh, we made a mistake. Let's, let's go back to the way we were. So those, those are some considerations when whether or not to make the change in the first place. Um, and then the final piece you talked about is the status quo, which seems to have been fine for the past, you know, 40 years. But again, um, I'm not sure that we've really captured the cost and the impact of that status quo uh, on a very significant segment of our workforce. The, this whole looking at stress and things like that, mental health, has really come through a revolution in the past four years since the collisions and this comprehensive review. And, uh, and certainly diversity and inclusion has come through a, uh, quite an awakening in the last two years. And so maybe that's a different context than there was back in 1984. On this kind of thing, I think part of what kind of holds back is the kind of assumptions that are being made, right? And I think there's something here with military values because the military values tradition, this concept of professionalism, right? And, it's almost we develop once these rules are made, there's this you get this Pavlovian response to good order and discipline and professionalism and tradition without a lot of thought, right? So it's like see the beard and attack it, right? So to your point, this education is important. To your point, until I started reading these articles, I never really thought through like, okay, hey, what are the consequences? I never had it. I know people were dealing with it, but it never been communicated to me. Hey, do you understand the impacts? And it took me until I was a command master to really get in and read the policy in depth and then learn about PFB and like what it actually was. And I, I don't even think back then it was to a point to where I understood the way you explained it very clearly at the beginning of the episode. And if I'd have heard it that way, I definitely know based on my personality type, I'd have moved forward and said, Hey, you know, start challenging that back then. So what do you think about this? This kind of the, the military values and military culture as an inhibitor to this change no i think it is uh and uh and you know and and in some ways rightly so but we have other examples of military culture and values that we sort of re-examined uh you know in the wake of the conference review the the sort of can't do attitude that had become kind of a mantra of uh i can get it done despite you know lack of resources or fatigue um and we're telling folks not to do that now 
And then, you know, and then how do we associate things like ponytails or beards or something like that? You know, it's always kind of, if you back out and look at it, uh, uh, we're making a big fuss over a little bit of fuzz on my face, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that perspective, but, uh, um, those would take time and it would take a, a messaging that says, Hey, we're doing this. Um, and, you know, for those of you that don't have this condition, it really doesn't impact you. So don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> don't fret about it. Find something else to concern yourself with and, and make lives better for, for your sailors. Yeah. You know, those would be some of the thoughts. Yeah. And I think if you put a reasonable beer policy in, is, you know, my opinion, you could actually do a lot of work to stop distracting mid-level leaders from enforcing these kind of things. You know what I mean? Hands in pockets and, again, that Pavlovian response. And I'm telling you, from the deck plate perspective, it's just this constant feeling of being hounded for something. You know, so that's yep. that's yep. to me this kind yep. of status quo risk is like there is a psychological impact on the force of like anytime you come across khakis or an officer or a chief, you're immediately on edge. What am I doing wrong? What am I calling out about? And there's so many regulations to know. That's why we have a huge book written about uniform regulations specifically. Right. But you can't just know it all all the time. There's some fundamental ones. No. So go ahead. Uh, it kind of sets up a pecking order automatically, right? Yep. And, and again, that result, that results in, you know, kind of a flight or, fight or flight response, um, that you kind of have to swallow and pull out your chit and show it. And after a while, you know, talking to folks that have been through it, it, it gets old, yeah. you know? Um, and so here I am, I'm, I'm part of the team, but then suddenly I'm not. And so, uh, so I think those are some of the, uh, some of the factors that, uh, you know, that could be part of the discussion. Okay. You know, let's start wrapping it up. So again, not your policy, but you've done a great job writing and advocating. You bring great experience, I think, uh, and your writing skills are important. I think you and I, that's the reason we write. We still care. We want to see things get better, not just for our sailors, but for the Navy, right? So what's next? If the Navy did decide to change the beard policy, what would you think, not your role would be, but what would you kind of be your reaction? Would you continue to write to help communicate and prevent backslide? Uh, I think so. I mean, certainly... Um the idea would be just to, to share the stories of how we got here, um, share the impact on people. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, great quotes uh, from, I think, one of your contemporaries or peers, uh, Raymond Kemp, who's a former Fleet Master Chief, he said, uh, you know, there has to be compassion from the unimpacted for there to be real change. And so, uh, you know, kind of getting that message across that, hey, there are people who, for whom this is a big part of their lives, and we could take that away and let them focus on other aspects of their job. Could could be a good narrative to have. And then listening, you know, talk to the folks impacted and uh, and understand. Um, if the policy didn't change, it's it's not a hill to die on, right? But uh, uh, I think it's definitely worth a look. Um, and I know that that we have uh, you know caring leaders, and I know that they're looking at it. And uh, you know, it's, I, I trust them to look at the data and make a decision. And so. Um, I just want to continue to to make sure that the that, that the information is is readily available and without bias. Awesome. All right. Any last thoughts to those leaders of any level out there who are considering workforce change but might be feeling resistant or hesitant to do so? You know, one of my friends, uh, a mentor of mine, when I took command, he wrote me a letter and says, "You know, your leadership style is what got you here. Now would be a really bad time to change it." So my advice would be look back at what got you where you are. And typically, if you're in a high leadership position, you probably got there by listening to your people and, and, and taking their thoughts into account, balancing across the force, uh, and then make a decision, but make that decision based on the best information available. And, and I think that's in process, and those things take time. So uh, 
when I think about change, you kind of have to have three things. You talk about being a changer. You have to have passion, right? You have to have be persistent, uh, but you also have to have patience. And uh, these things take time. So uh, my plan is continue to talk about it, write about it, see where I can contribute to the conversation, and uh, and kind of see what happens. Awesome. All right. I think that'll wrap it up. My guest today has been Dr. John Cordell. John, thanks again for joining me for a second time on the Cutlass Podcast and keep up writing the advocacy for change. Maybe we can do this again oh. soon. Okay. Well, Paul, thanks for the opportunity and uh, look forward to talking some more. Awesome. All right, everyone. I hope you all gained some insight in this area of change management and how leaders think through it. So some questions to reflect on. Number one, is there a demand for change in your team and organization that you're reluctant to consider? If so, why? Has the research not been done? Are you holding on to misplaced belief systems or values? Or is it based upon solid reconsideration of the risks and benefits associated with the proposed change? Number two, what current cultural issue or policy would you like to see change on? Are you doing enough to help frame the could be and help your organization or boss get to yes? And number three, what is your change style? Do you tend to be an innovator or a traditionalist? And how is that style helping or hindering your team or organization's desire or need for change or how you assess the risks associated with change? To learn more about this topic and others, make sure to check out the Chief Petty Officer's Guide or the other resources discussed and listed in the episode description. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to the Cutlass Podcast on your podcast channel, like it, share it, help me spread this content around, and then also consider checking out my webpage at cutlassleadership.com. Follow my Facebook page, Cutlass Leadership Concepts. This is Paul Kingsbury. Work hard to keep that leadership cutlass sharp, reflect and improve, and take what you learn to become a sturdy, versatile, incredible leader who dares to make a positive difference in your personal and professional life.